0: Hey, how's it going, guys? Thanks for coming out. Uh, this is IndieWire Screen Talk Live, uh, with the editor at large, uh, of IndieWire, Miss Uh, <laughs> Ann Thompson, and the, the, chief film critic, uh, chief film critic, is that correct? Yeah, you need it. Chief film critic, Eric Cohn. Thanks for coming out. Uh, you know, we, uh, I, the first time I went to Sundance was in 2003, and, uh, the, one of the first pe- people we met there was Eugene Hernandez, um, and Brian Brooks, and, uh, you know, as, people who love independent film and uh, like reading about it, IndieWire was the place to go. Um, you know, there's tons of other blogs that popped up and, you know, other organizations and people trying to do what they do, but I think no one has the, the breadth of coverage and, you know, the the smarts and the skills and uh, just in, on every aspect now, it seems like, you know, from TV to film to just everything, we, we love what IndieWire is doing. We love that they're involved in our festival. We love both these guys a lot and uh, we're, thanks for coming out and and uh, all those people out there in podcast land, uh, you know, you, sorry you weren't here, but uh, so here to take it away, IndieWire uh, <laughs> as uh, Eric Cohn.
1: Thanks, Jared. And, and give it up for Jared Neese, everybody. This guy is doing so much today. And in the last minute, responded to my desperate text message because we wanted somebody to introduce us. And he's the guy to talk to. I spent about a decade getting good tips from him on, on movies to check out here and great taco recommendations. So if you're not familiar with the the enterprise of taco journalism... You know today
2: that. he gets to introduce Nick Cage and Burt Reynolds. That's a good day.
1: Yeah, pretty good life. He could be doing this for us.
2: <laughs> Bye.
1: Thanks Jared. Thank you. So here we are, Anne, at South by Southwest, uh, still coping with the spring-forward situation. I got out of Keanu last night, and it was actually this morning, um, realizing that it was something like 3.30, and, and the bars had just closed, and I realized that was a real South by Southwest moment. And this festival just has, as
2: well, Harry. Yes.
1: The festival has such a unique identity. It's very draining, but it's constantly fun and filled with all these different things happening at once. Sometimes it's easy to forget that it's a film festival, so... I wanted to start off talking a little bit about that because we caught some flack last week in the last recording when we were sort of preparing for South by Southwest, a couple of different people. said it was
2: not a market. And of course, I immediately showed up and met some people who were selling their film here, you know, and went to a party at the orchard when they're looking for films. So, but they they said they actually said that they were mostly launching their movies here. They're they're really not expecting to buy anything.
1: But what do we mean when we say a marketplace? Because a lot of people have different understandings of that. You know, the the, the whole kind of mythological element of of the Sundance deal, where where, you know Harvey Weinstein and a million other buyers stay up till two a.m. bidding millions of dollars on certain things. It's, it's for one kind of movie.
2: So basically, the, the Sundance has more real North American uh, movie, you know, in other words, American English language world premieres that are the kinds of movies that and everyone goes. They're not just going to look for possible movies to put into their slates among the distributors, but the talent agents go, and there's a whole lot of talent discovery going on at Sundance. South By is a little bit more of a launch festival, I would suggest. More marketing marketing, more uh, movies that have distribution that are going out into uh, the world, something like Keanu last night, um, something like Midnight Special last night, which Warner Brothers is releasing and had a big party with Megan Ellison talking about her new distribution entity. And her buddy building. Barack Obama. And she got a 10-minute uh, meeting in front of the Obama speech um, along with several other entrepreneurs and filmmakers. Uh, they he, he organized them. Them, they all arrived at the long center and they each had 10 minutes with him which is why he was half an hour late <laughs>
1: he's um, doing around tables but i mean
2: fun. she's you know she's an example of, a, of an entrepreneur who who's looking at stuff and looking at filmmakers. you know, There's a lot to discover here, a lot to see here, but it doesn't have the scale of a market the way Cannes or, or Toronto or, or, or uh, Sundance has.
1: Or maybe it's defining the marketplace in a different kind of way. I mean, when I first came here 10 years ago, the interactive component of this festival, it wasn't that it was non-existent. It's that it, it didn't loom large. It wasn't the cliche that it has become. I mean, I don't know how many of you saw that amazing Onion headline where uh, after the first day of South by Southwest, the word innovation had already been used 6,000 times or something like that, but it's probably Someone else true. was
2: complaining on Twitter about the use of the word authenticity that no longer <laughs> it's useful.
1: I mean, speaking of on your headlines, if you look through the titles for some of these panels, they start to read like sort of parodies of themselves, but it's a scene, man. I mean, it, it really, the, the interactive component of this festival isn't just a reaction to the, sort of the the kind of creative culture that's defined by modern technology anymore. It It is that scene if you are a part of that world you have to be here and it's their convention things.
2: basically i exactly. mean if, if 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 show west what used to be called show us now called CinemaCon, is the exhibitor exhibitor convention for the movie industry um this is this is and 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 if sundance is sort of uh if you like an indie filmmaker convention the, the interactive side of this is is a convention for that digital world so i would positive valley
1: yeah the, the film uh, the film festival isn't in opposition to that. It's sort of a part of that. I mean, if you have a gold badge, you can do film and interact. What's
2: great is the way they merge up. So la, the opening night was this, uh, th- there were lots of parties on opening night, but I happened to drop by Refinery29. Have any of you heard of Refinery29? The women in the room have heard of it because it's for women. And, and I was, you know, they have a Jill Soloway series. They have Chloe Sevigny's first short that she's going to be debuting in this uh shatterbox uh, factory thing that they're doing it's 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 got a lot of interesting content on there a lot of it is is what you would find in glamour magazine or something but a lot of it's more thoughtful than that and it's all about putting the video on the website there is no other intermediary there is no distributor they if they get 150 million people to show up every day looking for content they can just give it to you
1: yeah i mean essentially what we're getting at here is if film is to survive whatever the new paradigm is for the future of entertainment that it needs to be keyed into to what that paradigm is. What are movies in the 21st century? And maybe that's the marketplace component here is how do movies find themselves in that equation? And and what do we even mean when we say movies? I mean, I remember talking to the high maintenance guys when they were here a couple years ago, sitting next to the CEO of Vimeo, who was beaming about this web series they discovered and then put money into and then a couple months later they signed with HBO. And I found that trajectory to be such a unique kind of dynamic where somebody creates something themselves with their own resources and gradually work through different kinds of media platforms to get to the largest possible audience. And and films are essentially I'm going I'm not the sure same though thing.
2: that that's where it's that that's the that HBO is the end point anymore. Well, I it's, I, I, it's, I think it's, it's possible to what I'm beginning to see is that scale that everybody was wondering when that would occur that if you could have a website with scale you don't need hbo anymore
1: well you don't necessarily need hbo but everybody needs to pay their bills right and everybody needs some kind of way to reach an audience and one of the things that i think there, there was some disconnect about when the kind of initial wave of interest and crowdfunding and the kickstarters of the world started to gain more and more traction is some people who are creatively minded don't want to be shameless self promoters uh, and and have adverse reactions to those cliches of the South by panels and so forth and, and kind of getting out there and sharing their ideas and
2: not everyone is a Joe Swamberg
1: right exactly sort of a one man shop
2: Keynoter here
1: right and and what's fascinating about that is you know Joe Swamberg somebody who's who really his reputation was made by this festival and uh, Janet Pearson's predecessor, Matt Dentler's decision to program movies like his, you know, that guy did not make much money for a really long time. And when he did, it wasn't from the movies that he was making.
2: It was from public appearances and speaking fees.
1: Well, and also sometimes he wasn't even making money from that, but film festivals will fly you out and you can, you know, spend some time just uh, living on uh, freebies and, and, and things of that nature. So how do you tell that to somebody whose dream is to be a filmmaker. You know, don't don't worry about making money. Just hope that you make something good enough that people, you know, fly you around the world. And, uh, you know, if you need to make a living, just uh, shoot wedding videos or something like that. Well, I think like what
2: we've all been waiting for is that moment where that gap between the emerging micro-budget Festival discovery, troops around, you know, getting their friends to help them, you know, make movies. Um, the Amy Simetz model, if you like, the early Duplass model. Well, what did they do? They went to TV (laughs) and that's filling the gap so that you have filmmakers and television makers and someone like Soderbergh functions in television alone at this point for however long he holds out. Um, but you can also survive on commercials. But I think what's starting to happen is the scale that we've been talking about is starting to occur where websites can be monetarily supportive as well.
1: It's actually a really interesting point because this thing that Louis C.K. has been doing recently where he just kind of tosses up this episodic content, it's 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 a show of sorts, but I don't know how many of you have seen this Horse and Beat thing that he's doing. It's fascinating because the first episode is like an hour, but there are some episodes that are 30, 33 minutes, and you can spend five bucks on one, three bucks on another, and he has complete control over the business model and the creative vision. Um, but he could only do that having developed you know, some serious traction, had a lot of difficult kinds of situations. You know, he made a studio movie that didn't work. He, he made a TV show that went away and then another one that kind of slowly gained traction and is now benefiting from a certain kind of environment. I mean, I think the...
2: He's ch- a brand, and he was smart brand. enough to take his. He is. He's like a Kevin Smith, who can take his followers, or Spike Lee. I mean, there's certain people, Michael Moore, who can take their followers and grow them, and reach them, and create a certain critical mass.
1: And what I think is fascinating about that is th- these are people, you know. In their 40s and 50s, and Michael Moore just turned 60, who preceded kind of the, the digital age when everybody's talking about how important it is to, to brand yourself and to, and to kind of be a shameless self-promoter. They were
2: all early adopters on the internet. They all got it early.
1: Because the personalities fit.
2: Because they know marketing. They know how to promote themselves. They're like Joe Swanberg.
1: Right. So... What do we do about those other people who aren't Joe Swanberg? I mean, there are so many movies that I see on the festival circuit throughout the year and around the world that are not obviously commercial, but I would love to sell people on. But at the same time, it's concerning to see a first-time feature from somebody who you know isn't necessarily geared towards throwing themselves into into this equation, or even you know going to a panel to hear about why you need a sales agent or you know, wretches when they hear the word innovate.
2: Well, I actually, when I was in New York, I had a sort of happy week in New York, a post-Oscar uh, theater-going crazy week. Sure, um, it was a good life. But I visited Ira Deutschman's class at Columbia, and he's a, a producer and and longtime industry distributor, executive type who... Um, Knows a lot. And the other guest was Ryan Werner. And we got into this This fascinating conversation about this very subject. And I was basically saying publicity is your friend. You know, you need publicists who know what they're doing, who are discerning. And and the way it works with people like us in the media is we use them in a way as gatekeepers because they know the ones we trust know what the good product is. And someone like Ryan Warner is the perfect example of someone who actually gets to see things ahead of time in order to figure out uh, which ones to represent. And he'll represent little films that nobody will ever see just because he wants to keep representing those filmmakers.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting point too because one of the most crucial overused terms I would say of of, of the kind of current digital age, it's not innovate. I think innovate could mean a million different things. I think it's curate, especially if you're in the culture sector because we're just inundated with so much noise, right? It's not just about the different TV options or the different film options. It's about which Twitter feeds you follow. Everything is about just having too many... Who do you trust? Right, who do you trust? And so that seems to be sort of the starting point for figuring out, you know, how do we... Move ahead with say, saying positive things about the quality of, of the kind of media that we like. So we like movies. What kind of movies do we like? We have to look for people who share our sensibilities or who are will, willing to advocate for certain kinds of sensibilities. Essentially, gate,
2: gatekeepers. We we trust their taste, and and Ryan Warner is definitely one of those people. If he likes, if he's representing a movie, I'm more likely to go see it. I'm more likely to take it seriously.
1: But let's double back to the marketplace question for a second, because how how do you actually create a, a business? Business model around that kind of thing I mean it, it's one thing for us as journalists to say oh we trust that guy we're gonna make us see that sort of thing but how if you're a distributor today and you're you're banking money on getting pe- butts in seats to theaters in an age when we're all used to just turning on Netflix I mean what what are the options now I mean it really seems like it's well, it's let me ask confusing you about last night
2: I mean midnight special shout it had opened in in, in Berlin um, and I responded to it in a, in several different ways. One, that it's the kind of movie that we like to see at festivals. It's an independent film. It's got Michael Shannon and Kirsten Dunst and Joel Edgerton. Great performances, good writing, good, good cinematography. It's, it's intense and it's a thriller. It's also incredibly derivative of E.T. and, um. I think
1: of it as Spielberg porn in the is, tradition of Super 8. It
2: is. And, but, and my question is whether, you know, the good old fashioned Warner Brothers which is like a studio and they have great marketers but are they capable are they going to be able to find that sweet spot to make people come and see it and they're opening it in a, on a platform and the same is true with um, Everybody Loves Some the, the Linklater movie Everybody wants, wants some I do this every time and it's it's because it's, um, I'm not a heavy metal fan uh, the it, it absolutely uh, going out limited you know so it, it's almost like there's probably better ways for these movies to find an audience that have to do with VOD honestly, and and the old-fashioned purveyors don't know how to do that or don't have the ability to do that because of the constrictions of their deals with all their windows.
1: But also you're talking about Warner Brothers, which has Batman versus Superman coming out in a couple of weeks. I mean, how much of a priority is it even for them to make a movie like Midnight Special work that well?
2: I was actually at the party last night talking to the publicists on that, and they're excited by it because they like it. Um, they do a lot of crap all year long, and they really like this movie. So
1: you're saying it's a one-for-them, one-for-me philosophy. all the way up to the top. Yeah, But that's an interesting kind of challenge. I mean, mean they did
2: Inherent Vice. They've they've done other smaller movies.
1: One of the things that I thought was kind of fascinating about Keanu, did anybody see Keanu last night, that late night screening? You'll get to it. Uh, I want to hear what you thought about it afterwards because um, I'm hearing a lot of different reactions, but what was most fascinating to me about this movie is that the trailer told you everything that you need to know and it was this is so, normal. It was so popular, but but this this was essentially a movie that w- seemed as if it was made in order to make that trailer. The trailer has something like that's 2. also 2 normal. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they it's, sell the movie. That's they they put things in movies specifically to put them in the trailer.
1: But to me, what was interesting about this is that if you just drop this movie into theaters. I don't think that there would have been quite the same sort of enthusiasm for it, partly because that trailer tells you so much. You know what you're going to get. And I think a lot of people are just sort of like, okay, I saw the trailer. I got it. They needed the platform of South by Southwest to validate the kind of zaniness of this movie.
2: Well, there, it's, I, They just, were it's banking the, on that. It's the same thing as Comic-Con. In fact, I find... The two are very similar in a disturbing way. But it's South the by I, Southwest in general or just that, yeah, that platform? Yeah, in general, in general. Danish. But the idea is to, is to spread the word. It's to, is to make something go viral via the media that's here and, and get it out there, and it works. It, it worked for Trainwreck last year.
1: Well, I'll be curious to see how a movie like Keanu does at the box office. I mean, it doesn't always work. I remember seeing Observe and Report here, which was... I, I loved it was that. Some, it's such a fun... I interviewed kind of Seth
2: like Rogen. ...edgy, subversive
1: comedy by studio standards. One of the cooler... Things he's done. That was everything. too smart
2: for the room. Yeah,
1: and Jodie a tweener. really interesting filmmaker. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, it did. No, it did well at the Paramount, though. The audience was dying. It was. It bombed in theaters. You know, I mean, I saw Greg Araki's Smiley Face in my first year here, um, and and that played really well too, and it got. Barely any release. Um, by the way, if you haven't seen Smiley Face, it's hilarious, and I highly recommend it. But those, what
2: have you seen so far that you liked? I want to know.
1: But th- those are the sort of things that I'm, I'm really responsive to. I mean, I, I saw the 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 f- one of the first screenings I saw when I got into town on Friday was was a film that until a few minutes before its premiere it was called the Untitled Fetty Alvarez Ghost Movie or something like that. They finally chose a, a name. It's called Don't Breathe, and it's it's super cool. It's this it's kind of it's inventive home invasion thriller in which a bunch of people try to rob a blind guy and then he kicks their ass for an hour and a half.
2: Eric, Um, you disturb me.
1: (laughs) You know what? It's catharsis, though. I mean, we work so hard during the day. I need to see people suffer on the big screen to kind of go back to normal. What was the
2: name of that weird one we saw at Sundance that you and I both liked? The the, the really (laughs) creepy, creepy... Woman ah yes, torturing the her. eyes of my mother. Thank you.
1: Yeah. That was that was the great discovery of this year's Sundance, although it currently does not have distribution. And but I but I, that's the sort of thing that we end up tracking so frequently. Are, are, what get what slips through the cracks? And all of the movies in the narrative and documentary competitions here are in danger of that happening to them. There is not a single movie in that section that has distribution, and none of them jump off the page in the sense that they have big star power. Or Maybe genre. the other half
2: will get. Picked up
1: the other half. So that so a this is romance a romance, series.
2: very dark, very bleak, with Tatiana Maslany, who who you may know from from television, and um, Tom Cullen, and they happen to be a real life couple because they worked in another movie together, and he was in the weekend, the Andrew Hay movie.
1: Oh, weekend, yeah, that yeah, was a, a good South by Discovery. Yeah,
2: yeah. so this is this is uh, 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 one of those movies where people are trying to fix each other and save each other, and you never know whether that's going to happen or not.
1: So basically, genre is a selling point in that respect. I mean, it's not the biggest star. It's, it's, maybe there's some value in that sense, but what, what you're what this you're isn't seeing the, is just...
2: this isn't this isn't a romantic comedy that's going to play uh, for women who want to fall in love on screen. It's it's much more of a disturbing. Uh, movie uh, about finding hope through another person.
1: A lot of times, the the movies that even if they win the grand jury prize here, they don't necessarily gain that much traction. It's, it, I remember seeing Natural Selection here, for example, a few years ago. That was a movie that got just such a great response. It was excellent. It was completely dropped completely
2: off. Completely died. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, so you know, to go back to that question of the market, because I just I, I feel like we need to smooth you know smooth over so, some of the complaints we've got here because. I I think it, it is something that needs to be scrutinized more and more, which is, you know, the marketplace for these things is just not as simple as it used to be.
2: Well, it's not simple at all. It's disturbing. I mean, the market in theaters is grim,
1: and yet the and VOD rolls, is becoming
2: right. much more demanding. So Netflix also. rolls
1: into town, and and they can feel totally and they're driving the
2: prices up right. for everyone else.
1: Right. And so so let's let's drill a little bit deeper into that. What does that mean when we say they're they're driving the prices up? Essentially, what happens is Netflix can offer a ton. Ton of money because they have a ton of money,
2: and it doesn't matter whether it does well in theaters or not. They might not. not They don't care. They Um, don't care, and they—that's a lost leader if they even go in theaters. They don't care about the marketing, and they don't care about making it work there. So it's a slight branding device for them. I mean, Amazon is much more friendly to the theatrical idea, um, and they actually have windows that they play with, which are shorter, but they're still there.
1: And then by buying it, that's an asset for them in any number of different ways because every that they bring into their library is a data point. So there's a documentary premiering here tomorrow night on Tony Robbins, uh, which I actually found kind of creepy in the way he's able to control crowds. I was thinking about Trump a lot. But um, it's worth checking out, partly because it's sort of a fascinating sociological phenomenon, but he's got such a huge following, and he has a TED Talk that's available on Netflix. So Netflix bought this movie and seems to have played some role in its production as well. And it's it's so clear to me that 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 Ted Talk must be super popular. It's
2: an algorithm thing. They test everything. They they know exactly what their customers like and how they've behaved and what other things they like. That's how they do, if you like this, you're going to like that. And that's how they make their decisions on what to House of Cards was made on that basis. If you like Kevin Spacey and you liked the original House of Cards from Britain and you like David Fincher, this will do well. And they just made it a huge, enormous bet on that. And it turned out to be true.
1: and the, that really raises a, a, a more extreme question of you know whether or not they have a monopoly on this approach or is it pushing for a new model? You know, I mean, AM, Amazon has a lot of data, but they're not necessarily capitalizing in, on it in quite the same way. They have
2: algorithms too, but they don't do it the same way. Amazon... For my money, I still believe in the theatrical um, experience. I think that if you can get out there in theaters and build word of mouth, if you've got a movie that's good enough for that, and you can put the right kind of marketing behind it, you can build something. Um, and you know, it's it's interesting to think that there were you know there were times when movies stayed in theaters for a year you know something like ET you know back in the day um but and sony kept woody allen's midnight in paris in theaters for almost a year you know it's it's possible but the rare but the thing the thing that that you can do is is when it does hit VOD and when it's available for streaming, more people are going to be aware of it. Netflix does not believe in that and I actually think they're better off in a funny way as opposed to going day and date. There's all kinds of rules that prevent them from skipping theaters altogether uh, whether you can play on uh, other formats but they actually don't care about theatrical so they have a different model.
1: But a lot of people don't. I mean just informal poll how many people here go to the theater once a week
2: you can all be right honest. all
1: right it's a special group you know, they came here. It's a solid, you are maybe special, half the room, right? something like that. But you know what I think is, is is that if you if you did that on the street or something, you know, you'd get a lot of people who say they just watch things at home. And so... Or on their mobile phones. The value of the movie theater in our society, I think, is still sort of this open question that has to evolve a little bit more. I well, mean, I, the
2: theaters themselves are struggling to survive by bringing in alternative programming. They're bringing in Fathom and... TCM classic movies and the opera national theater live you know Benedict Cumberbatch and mm-hmm. Hamlet or whatever
1: it's true and I mean if you've been to the Alma House here I mean they, they really capitalized on this concept of you know giving somebody some another reason to be in the room before it was almost as you know as, as dramatic as it is now to, to really do that but just being able to have a drink when you watch a movie can make such a fundamental difference and it was just a couple of years ago that New York overturned an old cabaret law and was able to start doing that
2: they're going to open up an Alamo, and now
1: it's New finally York. going to happen. And, and so it's 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 those kind of small tweaks where it's like this is a public communal space. Let's create the conditions for people to be there, and then the programming, the curation comes in where people say, and let's show them how good we are at giving them the full meal so that they keep coming back. And that's a tricky thing. I mean, I don't expect the multiplexes to adapt to that model anytime soon. But the when I was down theaters.
2: in Mexico uh, for the um, Morelia Film Festival, they have a really good circuit down there and they had a fancy thing where you could have a VIP pass to a section of the theater where you could, there would be a bar and there would be food and you could, you know, you could bring it inside and and if you pay that premium, it's sort of like the version of the Arclight, you know, where you get the reserved seat. But this was on a different scale
1: right? But entirely. Morelli, I mean, that's a college town and it's kind of a hip place, you know. They have them and...
2: throughout the country. It's a big, big circuit.
1: So Mexico is ahead of ahead of us in terms of incentivizing theatrical attendance. I think that says something <laughs> about how, the steps that are necessary to kind of make the progress here. Gosh, I wonder you know if we could install a bar in the back of the room if it would help our attendance for our live podcast. It, now, it's inspiring now, inspiring me.
2: Let's ask some questions of the audience. Please feel free to um, I believe to there are mics somewhere. There yeah, it is a mic in right the middle. There in the front. So, um, or yell out. You know, come ask us a question. Better to we'll, we'll use the mic. We'll Don't be it.
1: afraid because then we can record you and you can be a part of the conversation, podcast legacy. I got a question for you. I'm a big fan of both you guys. I tweet you all the time. Thanks. Dustin Chase, Texas Art and Film. Um, I kind of wanted to go, I know you probably are sick of talking about the Oscar race, but... Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I know, I know
2: Painful, man. Your predictions weren't
1: this good, and this time. Uh-uh, um,
2: I've messed up entirely. But
1: obviously it was a crazy year. It was a different thing that a lot of us have seen before who predict the Oscars, but what do you expect those, what kind of effect will those... Changes in that weird year that we had have on this coming year?
2: That's a good question, actually. Well, I think, <laughs> first of all, we already know that they're going to be more diverse movies that are already established as good in other words birth of a nation which debuted at Sundance which I saw with an audience that may have been slightly more enthusiastic than a real audience would be but I still saw the movie and I still believe that that movie will go all the way so Nate Parker that you know Fox Searchlight picked it up you know they're going to do everything they can you know to make that work the way they did with 12 years a slave so already that movie is more in the ballpark for what an Oscar movie should be than the ones that didn't make it this year. There were reasons why each one of those movies didn't make it and having to do with appealing to the, the audience. And all the changes that they want to make aren't going to take place... And, I mean, they're going to get rid of some people. They're going to make people not able to vote. But there's already huge controversy around that. And people in the movie business who thought that they were being rewarded for years and years of, of experience and knowledge and service with an academy membership with voting privileges are having it taken away if, God forbid, they worked in TV, or which is what many people in the movie business are doing now. So all these questions about the academy's real relationship to the real world, as opposed to veterans who have been rewarded inside a very white male universe, they need to do something. But it also feels like there's still a lot of um, uh, tweaking and adjusting to do, and it won't be immediately apparent, I think, except the films will be more, uh, I think... Birth of a Nation, and there are others. So do you think they're going to feel super guilty this time? Yes, absolutely, no question. So, they're so going to go. Out, they're going to back. They're going to go bend over backwards, which I thought they already were going to do this year. <laughs>
3: hmm. Hi, my name is Yodit Mam. I have a blog called "I've Had It with Hollywood," and I'm also on Critic Wire, and um, I really enjoy listening to you and writing there. And my question is, like, we've been hearing about the the demise of movie theaters and film going, you know, for years in every single IFP. It's always, oh, it's dying, it's dying. Meanwhile, I live in New York. I try to go see The Witch, Twice in a row, it's completely sold out. Good. And, you know, and, and it's always, I don't know if it's a New York phenomenon. You don't have enough theaters there. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and it's all, it's not always easy just to breeze into a movie. So my question is, is it really dying? Because even though, and I'm from Mexico, by the way, so I know what you're talking about. What's the name of that? Gina? I, I think, was trying to remember I think it. it's, uh, it's probably, uh, what is their name? Uh, Cine, Cinemex, maybe, or? Yeah, but the, the the private chain where you can eat sushi and you know, it's you know uh, the one thing that we need to do in Mexico is is when finally people stop talking on their phones when they're watching a movie that'll be the the real revolution. But but it's not um,
1: just a Mexico problem.
3: I, no. um, yeah, but they're particularly adamant about not turning off their phones. But in any case, I I, I want the the question is. Is it really dying? Because I think people still, even as expensive as it is in New York, even, you know, people still get something out of watching a movie on a big screen, so what are your thoughts on that?
1: I've had it with Hollywood too, that's a great name. I my my thoughts about it are: it's not about the big screen; it's about the space. I mean, I have a big screen at home too. I don't think you can wow people with scale. It's more about the being enveloped in an overall experience. It's like why do people pay to go to Disneyland when you could just you know toss your kid around in the backyard? There's something about the it's being enveloped in the overall experience that I think is is more of a selling point than actually the, the big screen itself. Even though those of us who are diehard moviegoers still appreciate that aspect of it.
2: I I just worry about it it's it, there's going to be movies and there's going to be people in in theaters but I'm worried about the idea that you can't have sustainable careers. That's the part. I, I think there's a huge loss to the movie business from people leaving. Um, I mean, some people argue with me and say, and it's just a stream of, you know, filmed entertainment, you know, make, well, why are you worried about the two hour movie versus, you know, the, uh, you know, a a TV series or something? And I watch a lot of television and I'm covering TV too, but I am worried about the ability of, of, of the duplasses or, you know, who, what's going to happen when, when, this, this generation's Coen brothers, nobody's willing to fund their movies and at a scale that makes them, you know, beautiful and lovely and worth watching. Um, you know, they, you can only have so many emerging movies. There has to be something in the middle. And that's what we're losing, I think.
4: And so my job is always to reach out to people like you and get coverage. And so I just want to hear your thought. First of all, congratulations on your. Thank you. I've been reading all about it. Um, and, uh, big fan of, uh, Sydney also, Sydney Levine. And, uh, how, how can I do my job better so that I can champion these, these young filmmakers and reach and have people like you write about them? Because that's a, um, that's a million dollar, you know, hit for me and these filmmakers to get known and get heard about and get, you know, like I have a documentary here that um, premiered yesterday, world premiere. And, it, you know, and of course I sent it to you guys to talk about, but, you know, it didn't work out. What's so. it called? Um, Phil's Camino.
2: What's it about? So it's
4: about a gentleman, Phil, uh, who has stage four cancer and he wanted to walk the Camino to Santiago in Spain. You know, the, the you actually walk across the country sure. and uh, he was too ill to do it, so he built his own Camino in his backyard. And like this tree was that town, and that tree was that town, mm-hmm. and he, he marked it, walked the five hundred miles in his backyard, and he was well enough to actually make it to Spain. And our filmmakers documented it and it ran in the short documentary feature, yes uh you know a short program yesterday
1: so what are their expectations talking to those filmmakers what, what do you think they're hoping to get out because a short film is such a specific kind of thing to yeah, have here exactly
4: um, well th- just coverage and and more um publicity in the sense that people learn about his story learn about the film learn about the filmmakers and we have i mean one of our co-producers uh, founded netflix you know, uh, Mark Randolph, one of the original co-founders of of Netflix. Our editor is Doug Blush, who's twenty feet from Stardom and also Hunting Ground. So we have great credentials, so to speak. And yet, you know, I'm here. They, you know, I flew in to help them and even at my own dollar because I I really believe in the film. I believe in the filmmakers and I want to help. Sounds like a perfect sort of
2: Oscar doc potential, you know. So, whatever you have to do to qualify, that would be the key, (laughs) you know.
4: Absolutely. But not just this film. I mean, just in general, it's like, how can I do my job better and serve my clients with working with organizations like yours?
2: Well, one of the things that we have a website. So, a lot of what we do is visual. You know, so we really like getting trailers. We like to put up trailers. We like to put up real good pictures. Yeah, if the trailer for that movie conveys the the,
1: the story as powerfully as as you've described it, I think, people would watch that.
2: It's about material. So we will often run, do right. first looks before festivals, you know, check this out, exclusives. And, and we may not even get to see the movie if we don't have time. We may not have time to interview the filmmaker, but we can certainly... I asked, actually said this to another publicist the other day. He said, like, could you see my movie and interview my filmmaker? I said, no, I don't think I'm going to have time. But maybe we could put something up about it, you know, and get other people to go see it.
4: Yeah, because, I mean, I'm happy to send a Vimeo link anytime. Well, our projects. Yeah, and, and
1: how long is the movie? Is that curiosity?
4: 27 minutes.
1: See, those are the tricky ones. Those are short films that are not, you know, sure. five, ten minutes. Once yeah. you get up to that, that, it's almost like a medium feature or something like that. They're hard to get into certain festival lineups and so forth, so I totally get that kind of challenge. You have to think in terms of, you know, what are the what are the good stories around this that you can pitch to people, too? I mean, we have so many different components to our site, and one of the ones that I see a lot of potential in that's been part of our DNA basically since the beginning Beginning. it's called Filmmaker Toolkit, which is filmmakers telling their own stories and sort of how can we service the needs of filmmakers, um, you know, how do you edit a scene in a certain way? How does this cinematographer pull off this tricky shot and things like that? And being able to say, hey, this cinematographer who, by the way, shot these three movies you've heard of did this really interesting thing here. That is a great story because we know that our readers want to know about it too. So it's it's really about just kind of getting inside of our mindset and saying, you know, what do we what do we want to think of IndieWire as? And where do we see our readers kind of responding to certain kinds of things? And then just look at how we cover films on the festival circuit, particularly the ones like you're talking about yeah. that don't automatically generate headlines. So. Yeah, and
4: no, I read you guys every day. Thank, I you, Thank you so very much. much. Appreciate it. I'm going to have to go. Let's
1: take one more because she, she's hi. running to the mic.
5: I, I stood up so quickly. Um, <laughs> hi, um, I'm very tall. Uh, my name is Rachel Stevens. I have my own podcast with uh, Florida State, FSC SoundCloud.com slash FSE Filmcast. Um, and so we have a gaming center inside. We have... We're fortunate enough to have a student life cinema. Uh, so we have a movie theater in our union umbrella and we have a gaming center and a coffee shop. Uh, but anyway, uh, and we have gotten a lot of success with combining... Our, like the classic model of an arcade inside of a movie theater, only we have like a gaming center and there's like a uh, League of Legends going Where on all the time. Where are you? Florida State University, uh, Tallahassee, Florida. Wow. It's the capital. It's not Miami. People sometimes think that. We know uh, that.
2: We know
4: that. <laughs> oh,
5: thank you. Um, and my question for you is, do you see a future with combining like virtual reality has been another... Buzzword, I think this year I've gotten a lot of headaches from putting those things over my eyes. And um, do you think that there's a future of combining gaming and movies to make that uh, interactive movie experience like you were talking about?
2: I've asked a lot of people about this, and I do not believe that VR is going to be in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. I really do don't and, and I'm not hearing other people. People are excited about AR, which is where you lay over things so, so that you're not like walking into walls and things. You're you're actually you know seeing the real world and then something is on top of it. And I think that there's and, and obviously people are going to play this stuff in their homes. But I have a feeling that the immersive experience, whether it's in 2D or 3D, in the theater, is enough.
1: Well, I, I love that you have an arcade set up there and the gaming component is really interesting. I teach at NYU and there's a gaming center right next to the classroom where I teach film history and, and one of the things that I love about that is that there, there is some more of like a porous element to these kinds of media and you just have to be attuned to those sort of things. So whether you're wearing a headset in the lobby of the movie theater or you're just hanging out at the arcade, mm-hmm. you're probably moving in the right direction and we'll, we will see some shifts. Probably we'll see them at South by Southwest first. So seeing all this stuff here, it. it's not the real world yet, but we're getting there. So you're definitely on the right track. So thanks everybody for being Thanks here this is a lot much. of fun we'll see you around